Hi, it's Jen. NPR is conducting its annual survey to better understand how listeners like you spend time with podcasts. So please help us out by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. We really appreciate your help supporting NPR podcasts. Thanks. It's interesting. We actually just canceled Netflix after having it for years and years. Um, We really did it because the price just keeps going up and up. And there's so many options. We have a toddler now. He's really into all of the Disney shows. And HBO also has Sesame Street. And we just didn't see quite as much draw on Netflix. I know they have a lot of good options. But just for the price, we, uh, we decided to go with the other streaming services since there's so many out there. The average American household now subscribes to nearly five streaming services. That's according to a survey from the industry group Kantar. For you, maybe those services are HBO Max, Hulu, Amazon Prime, and if you're like 220 million other people, Netflix. In April, the company reported losing more than 200,000 subscribers in the first quarter of 2022. Because of this, they saw shares plunge by 35 percent overnight. Netflix has since laid off about 150 employees, announced plans to crack down on password sharing, and said it was preparing a lower-tier subscription with ads. Netflix is often seen as the barometer of streaming video health, but what does all this actually mean for the industry, and how does Hollywood at large fit into this picture? We'll get into all that and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember, to join future conversations, download our 1A Fox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many are burned out without even knowing it. Struggling with work or any of life's roles can lead to a lack of motivation and detachment. Prioritize your mental health by talking with someone. BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with a professional therapist, and it's more affordable than in-person therapy. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Let's get into the conversation. Here to discuss the streaming wars is Amanda Lotz. She's the author of the new book, Netflix and Streaming Video, The Business of Subscriber-Funded Video on Demand. She's also a professor at the Digital Media Research Center at Queensland University of Technology, and she joins us from Australia. Amanda, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Also with us is Ryan Fonder, a film business reporter at the Los Angeles Times. He's also the author of The Wide Shot Newsletter, which covers the business of entertainment. Ryan, welcome back. Hello, hello. Okay, so let's start with the news of Netflix losing subscribers. Ryan, what's happening? Well, Netflix said that in its first fiscal quarter of the year, it lost 200,000 subscribers. And this was uh, for a number of reasons, including competition, which Netflix has kind of only started to acknowledge for the first time uh, in recent months. And also password sharing, which it says is out of control after kind of acknowledging with a wink and a nod uh, until recently. And then also the issue in Russia where Netflix and basically every other American streaming service pulled out 
uh, a, a number of weeks ago to protest uh, the, the, the war against uh, the invasion of Ukraine. And so that actually lost them 700,000 subscribers. So, and that means that if they hadn't done that, then they actually would have gained about 500,000 subscribers in the quarter. Um, but instead, this, uh, this ends up looking like a loss for them. Uh, which it is, hmm. uh, and, it, and it's the first—it's their first subscriber net loss uh, in more than a decade. So yes, shares plunged, and shares have been plunging for uh, quite a while. They're actually down. I think last time we checked, uh, around seventy percent so far this year. And Amanda, just put this into context for us: two hundred thousand subscribers. It sounds like a lot to lose, but how many subscribers does Netflix have? More than two hundred million. So this. The, what is happening or what we're seeing in terms of the stock market response, I, I don't think we can think of as, as really tied to you know, sort of the reality of, of the subscriber numbers. But I think it's a symptom of a maturing of both investor understanding of the marketplace uh, and, and simply where we are with these businesses and the transition from how we have accessed video historically and, and sort of this new world that we've been moving into with streaming. Now, Netflix is reworking its business model to regain ground. Ryan, as you mentioned, they have these plans to crack down on password sharing. Since the company estimates about 100 million households are borrowing logins, how would that work? Well, they're testing this idea in places like Peru and Chile right now, and it's not super clear how well it's going. But the idea is that instead of just full-on cracking down on people sharing uh, their Netflix passwords with their grandmother or their, their, their ex-partner who moved out of the house, they would instead charge you a little bit more if you want to share your password with that person. So it's not like you can't share your password. Uh, Netflix just wants to be able to lo- make a little bit more money from those uh, from those people. Now, Amanda, for those who, who want that cheaper option, Netflix will be testing a version of the service that includes ads. What impact might that have on their bottom line? Honestly, John, I think the the ad news is is extraordinary and um, of a nature that I cannot even imagine. And so I really don't want to speculate on on what that's going to look like. Um, I think it it seems a fair bet that it won't be this access to the same service. Um, I don't feel confident that it would be an experience like we're used to with television where you have uh, commercial pods interrupting your programming. Um, Perhaps it will be pre-roll more along the lines of what is consistent with YouTube videos. But as you can see, there are so many questions. And honestly, the cost and scale of introducing ad support or an ad supported option to a service that is mostly available or most of the market for it is outside of the U.S. Um, that's a really big and expensive proposition. So I, I think we need to wait and see how uh, that rolls out before we speculate. Now, Ryan, Netflix laid off roughly 150 employees after their subscriber numbers dropped. And we'll hear from one of those employees in a moment. But what are the details around that decision? Well, it's pretty widespread in terms of which divisions were cut. Um, And in addition to the 150 full-time workers who lost their jobs, there were also uh, quite a few, dozens of contractors and freelancers, people working on animated shows 
that were thrown overboard and uh, people who were working on social media accounts, uh, many of which were meant to and set up to promote uh, content that featured and elevated people of color and people from LGBTQ groups. So yeah, this has had a bit of a ripple effect online uh, for sure. And you know, I think people, I think people in the industry were honestly a little surprised that after just a little blip like this, like um, I had to mention, like this is not a huge subscriber loss by any means in the grand scheme of things, that Netflix would uh, resort to layoffs after something like this. Amanda, when you look across the industry, are you seeing? other streaming services experiencing a similar dip in subscribers? It's hard to compare because Netflix has been in the market so much longer. Uh, Comparatively, the services such as Disney+, Paramount+, HBO Max, in many cases, they're still in the process of an international rollout. Um, And so in many ways, it's difficult to, to compare. I think what we're seeing, and maybe that's a good point, is separating what's going on in the U.S. market from the, the global runway that might still exist for these services. Uh, and the, the, the U.S. market, it, it, it is its own space, especially because so many of the other services are predominantly based on U.S. produced titles, um, whereas the Netflix library is far more globally sourced, um, again, making it distinctive in the market from some of those others. And now let's hear from one of those former contract employees who was laid off by Netflix in May. She joins us anonymously due to a non-disclosure agreement. Thanks for joining us today. Hello, how, how are you? Doing well, doing well. So what kind of work were you doing at Netflix? Yeah, so um, I was part of the larger editorial publishing team, and uh, we would essentially be the middleman between the fans and the company with the content that they would release. So that means anything from like watching the content and then trying to figure out like, okay, what are the fans like? What do we uh, excuse me? What do we anticipate the fans are going to want to know, and how do we repackage that and deliver it to them? Mm-hmm. Now you were part of a second round of layoffs at the company. What were you told about your role and and how secure you were as a contractor? Yeah. So originally, when I was hired, when we were all hired, they told us like, you know, don't worry. There's a lot of layoffs in the media business. You know, because we were from all over the journalism, you know, uh, highway. We were from all over everywhere. And so they told us, like, not to worry. You're going to be stable here. Uh, This is, you know, a big company. We have a lot of funding and things like that. So you can rest assured that your job will be safe. And lo and behold, second round of layoffs, right? How did that happen? How did you find out? So the way that we found out was all of a sudden, while we were working during the workday, we uh, had no longer, uh, we no longer had access to our Google email and the Slack channel. So all of a sudden, communication just dipped. And that was the way we found out, like no call, nothing. Like all of a sudden, it was like no access, sign in again, and we couldn't sign in. So... Well, we did reach out to Netflix about these layoffs and a representative sent over this statement saying, quote, the agency contractor decision was part of several changes we are making to how we run all our social and publishing efforts. All of our audience focused channels, Contoto, 
a strong black lead. Most Netflix Golden are a priority for Netflix. They have always been and will continue to be run by people from these communities, Asian, Black, Latinx, LGBTQ+. By bringing the work in-house, we can further invest in these audiences and have the experience, the expertise rather, uh, continue to sit inside Netflix. From your experience at the company, who were you seeing being laid off in these two rounds? Yeah, the first round was really, it was uh, mostly the LGBTQ people on our team and the uh, minorities, which was interesting because it's like, wait a minute, like we're the last, you know, we're the first hired, right? And then like, you know, we're the last hired and the the first fired basically. And so when I saw like, you know, a lot of my colleagues, you know, same color as me, you know, getting, getting fired and we're supposed to be, you know, the, the, again, that, that fan connection uh, in the, you know, like trying to reach somebody who is also of the same, you know, color, race, sexual orientation as you, that's important, right? So when I first saw the first round of layoffs and seeing those mostly at the time LGBTQ people leaving, I was heartbroken because we had things like Heartstopper coming out, right? And uh, that's like a huge one with the LGBT community. And I'm like, who is going to properly cover this stuff if you're getting rid of the people that these shows are supposed to be targeting, right? They're supposed to be uh, starting this conversation. We're supposed to be having these conversations with these fans. And you can't do that properly if you don't have the people that represent that content in the company, if that makes sense. Well, one of the laid off Netflix editorial workers who also wanted to remain anonymous told us, quote, the layoffs affected a lot of black and brown people in departments representing LGBTQ plus and Asian people. So the diversity and inclusion optics don't look good, even if that were not the intent, end quote. A Netflix representative also sent over a statement about this issue saying, quote, before and after the layoffs, our diversity numbers across Netflix remain the same. Nearly 50 percent of our U.S. employee workforce is made up of people from one or more historically excluded ethnic and or racial backgrounds, end quote. We got this tweet from Phoenix who says, my partner and I canceled our subscription because of Netflix's transphobic actions, particularly greenlighting Dave Chappelle and Ricky Gervais, who only offer hate disguised as comedy. There were headlines about internal conflicts uh, after the Dave Chappelle comedy special on Netflix, a special that contained transphobic jokes and language. How do you feel the company dealt with those conversations? I feel that they did not deal with the Dave Chappelle situation very well. And uh, I got laid off before the Ricky Gervais situation. So I wonder what the internal communications look like for that since that has come out. But originally, when we got hired, we were also told that we would be able to address the elephant in the room sometimes because we're all on social media, right? We can see the conversations happening. We were told we can address it, but in a way that's like, okay, obviously we can't trash the company we work for at the same time, right? But there should have been a way that we could be like a mediator, like, yes, we are aware of the, you know, the Dave Chappelle transphobic comments. But when it came down to it, when we would pitch things, when we would say like, hey, how can we properly address this? How do we make sure that the Netflix trans community feels safe? We were told like, we're not going to address it at all. 
So they basically shut down and then that affected the course of future work with controversial, um, with controversial like subject matter. So as someone who's working inside Netflix and, and writes about the industry, what are you thinking about the strategy Netflix is taking? That is such a great question. And uh, I know Ryan is from the LA Times is on the show and uh, I, I read his blog and um, he has such, you know, great words to say about this. For me, looking, looking inward, or I guess like having been in it and looking outward now, I really do feel like the changes that Netflix is making. So like one of the most recent ones is that they're saying that they're going to pull back on the content that they acquire. And I think they should have been doing that from the beginning, right? It's just not a sustainable business model to green light, you know, a hundred plus, you know, shows, TV uh, shows and movies and stuff across a wide spectrum and then only have like three of those things be famous or whatever. It's just not a sustainable business model. And then you're spending $30 million plus per episode on things. So I think that it's great that they're doing that now that they're cutting back on like what they're trying to acquire and what they're trying to put out there. But I don't think that they should have fired the people from the bottom first. If you're a billion dollar company and you can't weather like a couple of quarters of bad, you know, bad subscriber problems, that's not good business. Um, so I think, I think they're, I, I mean, I don't want to stick up for them obviously now, but I think that they're headed into a better, healthier direction, but it should have started like that from the beginning. It shouldn't have just been like, let's just get whatever, put in whatever content. Cause none of it gets not the, a lot of it doesn't get the proper attention uh, for it to pay off. So they should have curbed spending at the top before they cut the bottom. That's a former contract employee who was laid off by Netflix last month. We really appreciate you sharing your experience with us. Thank you. Ryan, in, in listening to that former employee, what are you thinking? Is this a Netflix problem or is this a streaming problem more broadly? Well, there's, there are a couple things to address with uh, what our uh, anonymous guest uh, uh, conveyed uh, when, when she was speaking. And, you know, to the point of whether uh, Netflix is, is internally debating the Dave Chappelle controversy now or the Ricky Gervais controversy after, uh, we actually know how Netflix feels about this stuff because they said so in an updated employee memo that they uh, that they uh, circulated and is available publicly online so everyone can read it and they essentially said if you know we are a company that makes global content for every point of view and everyone uh, that that could potentially subscribe to Netflix around the world and so that means we're going to be making an awful lot of shows, and that may include some programming that uh, you as an employee may find harmful. And their message to employees is essentially, if you don't like it or if you don't feel like you can work on shows that you find harmful, then Netflix might not be the place for you. And that is their stance, and it's a very... Uh, you know, they, they have taken this... Uh, stance of being very pro um, uh, freedom of expression by artists. And that is how they are approaching these controversies. 
Amanda, we've been talking a lot about Netflix, but its competition is also a huge part of the story here. If we look at the range of streaming services and what they're offering, what is Netflix up against? Well, I think the first thing to recognize is that it's up against different things in different countries, Mm. right? So um, the conversation in the U.S. very much considers the fact that historically much of the population, um, the numbers are down now, but at 1.90% of the U.S. population subscribe to cable or satellite, and that's, that's quite high. Um, and so those numbers have come down some, but so Netflix you know, competes with, with that. In many cases, people off have both uh, cable and satellite or and a variety of streaming services. In recent years, a variety of other streaming services have come to market. And I think the way I look at these is to keep in mind that they aren't all running the same race. So even though we have a lot of services that provide video to consumers, their purpose for being isn't necessarily exactly the same. Uh, so Netflix is, is somewhat unusual. Um, in that it didn't have an existing library and at this point is a pure play service. Its only business is providing video to subscribers for money. Um, That's different than, let's say, Amazon and Apple, which are services that are part of larger corporations that earn most of their money doing other things. And, And the idea is really that offering video is a supplement to those other businesses, whether it's providing a reason to have an uh, Amazon Prime membership, because that means you will also uh, spend more money with Amazon, or to keep you in the Apple device ecosystem. Well, that leads us to this email from Aishal in Boston, who says, I canceled most of my streaming services, except for Amazon, because it's included in my Prime membership, Paramount Plus, because I'm a lifelong Star Trek fan, and they own that franchise, and Disney Plus, because sometimes I need a comforting reminder of childhood with all that's going on in the world. We'll be back with more in just a moment. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Now let's jump in with a voicemail from some of you about cutting the cable cord. I had DirecTV and I was paying over $200 a month. I got tired of spending that much money So now I stream everything with high-speed internet access, which finally became available last year where I live. I believe that this is the way to go to save as much money as possible. I'm saving close to $150 a month now. I feel like there's so many. How do you know which one to keep up with? But it is cheaper, honestly, as someone that's in their 30s to just get streaming services instead of cable. So there's still the appeal in that. Thanks to Jennifer in Missouri and Misha from Virginia for those voicemails. Amanda, we're hearing that streaming is saving some people money, but if the average household already has four to five streaming apps, when does this eventually become just as or more expensive than having cable? I think the issue is that it depends a lot on the household, right? So historically, something like a cable bill, I think, keep in mind that Everyone was paying basically the same amount, whether you were a household of four uh, or whether you, you know, had a tiny studio apartment for the first time. You know, the, the amount of cable, let's say, you'd use and, and what you'd watch in that giant package varied a whole lot. And I think the way I think about these streaming services is that they aren't like cable, where you have to have this long, ongoing relationship. Um, Instead, you have the opportunity to choose the things that you particularly want, um, and you can come and go from the services far more easily. And so I I think we're hitting that point, and your callers have, have noted it, right? 
as, as the price points of these services increase, uh, consumers are, are making choices. And it's based on what they've, you know, when they've felt like they have exhausted one of the libraries, you know, let the service go. Come back in six months. Come back in a year. Don't come back. Right? It's much more easy to come in and out of the services and target those that are offering specific content that's relevant to you, um, as opposed to having you know the the giant offering that was really required with a cable subscription. Jeffrey emails. I'm not sure why more people don't do this, but I subscribe to one service at a time. I've bounced around between HBO Max, Hulu, Netflix, Apple TV, and Disney. I'll subscribe for a month, watch what I want, then move on to the next service. Now, I I have to say, Amanda, this sounds incredibly ambitious to me because just trying to juggle the services and figure out when things are going to run out and, oh, i got to cancel that before it hits my credit card. Like, that's, I commend folks who can do that. But how has consumer behavior started to evolve as we're seeing more streaming services come out? It depends on, I think, the passion for the content and the discretionary spending of the household, right? So there's just more flexibility that, is able to account for those variations. You know, in, in my household, we subscribe to Disney Plus over the summer school holiday. Um, and so I think, you know, as this is all uncharted territory, we have not had services like this. Um, there, there is no known roadmap. Um, and as soon as consumers sort of figure something out, the services are going to come back and say, well, if you'll subscribe for the whole year, we'll cut the price down to this, right? And so, you know, we're, we're in the beginning of this relationship between these services that are trying to find price points where they can be successful um, from a commercial standpoint, and consumers are trying to find access to a range of content that's interesting to them, um, again, at, at a price point that is reasonable and satisfying to them. We got this tweet from Jay who says, we subscribe to all the big streamers and don't feel like we're getting real value out of any of them. My kids spend most of their time on free YouTube content and my wife mostly consumes eBooks on Kindle and Audible. Ryan, at this point, what do you think is, is driving content production in in streaming? Is it what consumers say they want or what these streaming companies think consumers want? Uh, it's demand, demand, demand. Uh, and the nature of the streaming business is that you know, these companies can put out tons and tons and tons of content and you can sign up for Netflix and binge an entire season or two of Stranger Things uh, over a weekend and cancel it on Friday um, after you're done. So these companies have to keep on putting stuff out. And it, you know, I think a couple years ago, people would have said, "Well, there's 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 no way there's no way people can watch." all of these shows and movies that these streaming services are, are, are putting out. And I think we're seeing that it's not, that's not necessarily true. There's not enough good shows being produced that can sustain all of these services. You have the certain things on Netflix, you have HBO Max, you have Paramount Plus, you have, you have Peacock, you have uh, the Roku channel, you have Canopy, you have all these things. And a lot of them are, are, are dependent on original content being produced, and this costs billions and billions and billions of dollars a year, and there's no end inside of it until they find out that, oh, wait, there is actually a limit 
to the number of services that people will subscribe to. And now we have to pull back on our spending so we can have a business model that makes sense. Well, that gets me to this email from Samuel, who says the problem is the pricing is too chunky. At the minimum, you have to commit to a month or a relatively expensive rental. What about setting up a micropayment system which charges a la carte from a menu? I'd love to hear from both of you about the user side of this, the consumer side of this, and where you think it's heading. Because I think about when streaming first started and it, yeah, it was like Netflix was the big giant. And there are dozens, I mean, dozens and dozens of streaming services now that I, I don't even know what, what plays on them, frankly. But Amanda, where do, you, where do you think this might be heading to make the consumer experience a little more simple? I think ultimately we'll have fewer players. I don't, I don't think they all make it. Um, and I think you do have services like Apple, Amazon, uh, that are trying to be that seller. And, and I, I, I hear what your uh, listener is talking about in terms of the cost of a, a rental. But I also think we have to remember how much it used to cost to rent a video at the Blockbuster. And those prices aren't really out of line. Um, the truth is, making the content that is on these services costs a lot of money. And, and honestly, I think the, the bigger unknown is that the industry that makes those shows and movies also doesn't know sort of where the boundaries are. Um, they're not clear on how, how much we should be spending on shows anymore because it used to be you'd make a show and it would be on NBC and then NBC would be able to sell that in other markets and continue to make money um, from that title. And in the streaming model, it, it's all the money up front and, and there isn't the opportunity for those subsequent sales. So there's, there's a lot here that is pretty precarious um, and unknown. And so I, the, 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 Viewer and user concerns are, are certainly um, key to what the companies are trying to figure out. But the other side of it, the cost of, of keeping the, the content coming and, and really, uh, we were talking about peak TV um, well before the streaming services came along. And, and I think, you know, more than anything, what we're hearing right now is, is this question of, is the level of production sustainable? Um, not for necessarily for the streaming companies, but just this whole idea of monetizing content in this way, uh, especially as new advertising money has not come into the market, um, despite new uh, ways to advertise. Um, and so that leaves the consumer as being the only other way to access funds. That's Amanda Lotz, the author of Netflix and Streaming Video, the business of subscriber-funded video on demand. Also with us, Ryan Fonder, a film business reporter at the LA Times. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. NPR is conducting its annual survey to better understand how listeners like you spend time with podcasts. You can help us out by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. We really appreciate your help. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. This is 1A.